0: the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, I don't really know where to start with this introduction. That's not because the episode is a mess or anything, although grief does tend to be real messy, but because the conversation I had with Amy Choi and Rebecca Lair, founders of the Mashup Americans, was so vast. We went big picture theoretical and very detailed personal. All in less than an hour. Amy and Rebecca co-host the podcast, The Mashup Americans, and they recently released a series called Grief Collected, which is how they ended up on Grief Out Loud. The Mashup Americans podcast delves into all aspects of crossing culture lines, and they bring this lens to Grief Collected. The series includes five interviews with folks like Adrienne Marie Brown, Dorothy Hollinger, and Linda Tai, discussing how grief impacts us emotionally, physically, culturally, and collectively. All the episodes are out now, and once you finish this one, go check them out. The interviews alternate with shorter episodes that introduce practices for metabolizing grief. If you stop listening halfway through our conversation just to speed up getting to their series, I won't take it personally. It's really that good. Speaking of personal, while Amy and Rebecca kept their own grief stories mostly out of the grief collected series, they generously talk about them with me. Rebecca has experienced many deaths from a variety of causes, including a few close friends when she was back in high school. Those early losses combined with what she learned from her family taught Rebecca to show up when someone's facing the end of their life and after they've died. In contrast, Amy's upbringing left her mostly in the dark about how to respond to loss and grief. As a mother of two children, Amy is working to change this inheritance and to talk more openly about all aspects of loss. This shift was inspired in part by the deaths of a mom and her young daughter in Amy's close community. Okay, I'm going to stop here before I give away the whole episode. One last note, this episode does talk about suicide. As always, if you or someone you know is struggling, please reach out. You can call 988 or text HELLO to 741-741. Amy, Rebecca, thank you so much for making time to come on grief out loud. I feel a little uh, intimidated because you all are like real professional podcasters. And it's an honor to have you on the show. But I'm also a little like I'm nervous.
1: Well, you're a professional grief, grief person. So now we're nervous. What <laughs> well, we you're, the wrong you're like an actual professional. Um, as we have said, we are we are
2: interlopers in the world, but people with um, problems and questions, I guess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so hope this turns into a therapy session that you're preparing um, yeah. to to guide. I'm always ready. I got tissues on the go. No problem.
0: So hmm. so for listeners who are not familiar with you and with your work and with your, your podcast, the Mashup Americans, uh, what does it mean to be a mashup American? That is a great question. And Rebecca's
2: nodding at the Zoom through me as, as if I should answer. A mashup American is somebody who is, um, you know, there's kind of like a strict definition and then not rooted in a culture that's different than the, than the one that their parents or grandparents came from. Um, as somebody who is married to somebody who is in a different culture, race, religion than um their own and oh rebecca what's the third
1: well and then ultimately it's the the world we live in as americans in a pluralistic multiracial society so there's the that's the, the the third largest circle is just the culturally engaged and but mash up and mashiness is this idea of hyphen identity specifically in in the u.s so that's that's who we are i'm a you know first generation. My mom is from El Salvador. Um, Her parents are uh, European Jews who ended up in Latin America. So in Brazil and El El Salvador and then met. And then my mom moved to the States and then she met my dad in the States. He's first generation. So those are the layers of culture that we're that we're that I'm navigating and then I married somebody from a different cultural uh, ethnic and religious background than me, but a Californian, which turns out to be in the hierarchy of my identities, yeah. maybe tough. <laughs> so, you know, and, and those moving and that's something we think a lot about in our work, which, you know, we started this company in 2013. We, everybody we, we are in community with is similar. And even though Amy and I have different first-generation mashups and our family and our partners everything about us is a different mashup actually the experience of being first generation and navigating the multiple cultures is ve- there are so many parallels yeah. thank you it.
2: for being so smart Rebecca that was a great answer
1: you know what <laughs> I have been doing this for approximately 9.5 years true. I
2: think you know the, the broadest <laughs> Um, kind of lens that we put to our work and like the project of the Mashup Americans as a whole is being rooted in tradition and also looking forward. We do think, you know, being a Mashup American is exploring what it means to be American today and like what what culture we are creating going forward. And that's also how we look at uh, grief, which I'm excited to talk about today with you. And Amy, did you want to share at all about your kind of unique mashup Venn diagram? Oh, my mashup. So I'm first generation Korean American. I'm the first person in my family to be born in the States. Um, And I grew up in the Midwest, which is also uh, like for the Korean diaspora. There's a lot of us who came and whose parents came in the 70s. And most of them are in Los Angeles, but not me. So I grew up in the Midwest, and then my husband is a first-generation Colombian Mexican-American, and so our kids speak, I would say, 2.5 languages. 2.2. They're Korean, not so much. My Korean also, as I like to say, am I like a good two-cocktail Korean speaker? As in, (laughs) I'm like, great if I've had two cocktails. And I live in New York City, which, after LA, I think is the mashiest city in the world.
0: Well, I appreciate just that thinking around collection of identities and how there's these unique aspects of identity. And then there's the collective experience of being first generation or second generation in another culture and how there can be these universals Mm -hmm. around that. And I think about that a lot with grief, right? That grief is so unique for every single person. There are some universals in grief, but how that plays out for people depends so much on their identity constellation and where they were raised and their culture and all of those different pieces. So I'm really appreciating that, that overlap. And, you know, we're talking today, you all have been doing this show for many years, but you decided like, hey, let's do a whole series of episodes and interviews about grief, Uh, which is not often where people think like, yeah, I can't wait to do that. But you all are (laughs) doing it. And, you know, (laughs) I've gotten to listen to the episodes that are out so far, and it's fantastic. What drew you to wanting to talk about grief either from a personal place or a professional place or from a cultural standpoint?
1: Um yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the things that we have always done or is we like we like to think about challenging questions and we we're as we say we we like to exercise our hope muscle and are fairly optimistic people, but our belief has always been that by talking about a challenging topic, we actually get to a better place and as opposed to avoidance. And that is (laughs) you're you're a social worker. It's it's very interrelated to the the where we are in, in our identities as first generation Americans in that we are reflecting on so much of the hard stuff that our families went through to immigrate to save their families or to find new opportunity and there's a lot of loss and there's a lot of <laughs> guilt and there's also a lot of joy and we're trying to say the you know grief out loud we're trying to say the the quiet stuff out loud and that has always been what we do as as mashup and so in this case it was really thinking You know, looking around in this period of time, particularly since 2016, which as people who are children of immigrants um, who are from minority and marginalized groups uh, felt such a confusing and terrifying moment to be American and thinking about our place in it. There was a grieving of something that we thought was the country that we were a part of or that we were working to build so there were layers of that loss and then thinking about the societal we as you know we're we're hyphen americans we always say we're mashups but we're very much americans and so but suddenly being like why doesn't anybody ever want to deal with anything why doesn't anyone want to acknowledge that that there's all of this grief and loss and why are we erasing history um or not talking about so many things that are at the kind of Baseline of what it of what how America was built. And so I think there's been this beautiful emergence of many of these conversations, particularly around the the death of George Floyd or, you know, uh, and in Covid, an opportunity to say, Hold on, hold on. We really want to talk about this, and we really want to get away from the sort of pathological need to move forward without ever acknowledging kind of so much of the pain and loss that so many people are feeling. Does that make sense?
0: That does make sense and it makes me wonder, and Amy, you might have some thoughts about this. It seems like sounds like you approached it from this more global societal perspective, right? Here we are as a society, as a community, as a country, moving in different directions and not having a lot of time or space to reflect on What gets lost in the moving of the forward, or just the natural unfolding of life—things, people die, things change, loss occurs. I'm wondering, though, is like, was there any personal connection to the experience of having had people in your own life die, and how that showed up in your family, and particularly from that lens of being, you know, hyphen American, mashup American? Um.
2: Yes. Well, I think so. This idea, the visual that that I always come back to is and to uh, to apply to like what Rebecca is talking about here is this idea that like we understand that we did not somehow end up like on the middle step of a staircase only going in one direction right like there's stuff that comes before there's going to be stuff that comes after but like as a culture we're so hyper focused on just like only looking forward Um and I think that what we have found is that that is that was true for me at least with personal losses. And I think, you know, it was really important, actually, for us to think about grief outside of death. And that that was clear from the very beginning, that we we knew going in, even though we had suffered a, many and varied kinds of personal bereavements, that, that we wanted it to to think about loss as a whole and not death loss only on in this particular project. Um, so I think we always went into grief collected with that frame of mind. Um, that said, you know, I think the project has has changed and developed a lot over the past couple years in which we were working on it. Like we started thinking about this maybe in December of 2020 and then we're like slowly developing and thinking about that. Like in that time, I had a really profound personal loss, which was that, um, my daughter's best friend, my daughter at the time was five, and her mother both died by suicide. Um, her mother was a friend of mine, a good a good, a good mom friend, and um, her daughter was my daughter's best friend. And it was, it was what suicide is, which is, Horrific. It, I mean, it like it. I remember my daughter at the time went to a Jewish preschool, and the rabbi came on to talk to to the families, and they were like, you know, this. There's no. This is a tear. Like this is a rip, and and there's no backing away from that. There's there's nothing else to say about that except to know that like we're all going to be here, and see it because it's it's a it's it's this incredible. like incredible in the magnitude of how tragic it is. And I think for me, that was the first time um, it was complicated because that was the first time I'd had a really close personal relationship with somebody who had died and then also died, especially in such a tragic way. And also helping my kids navigate their grief and loss, which was a completely different beast for me as a as a parent and helping my five-year-old daughter understand that like in two days she was not going to see her best friend on their usual weekly play date that happened and i think what it opened up for me at that period in covid was that realizing how much had been hidden away in like my family's death stories If that makes sense, like and Rebecca has almost a completely opposite experience, which she can share and which was was revelatory for us who like consider each other family is that in my personal family's culture, we just didn't talk about that. If somebody died it, when I was a kid and I now like really pouring through my memory, like I can remember when my dad had a friend who died or when a, you know, when an when a relative in Korea died and we would kind of hear stories. And then my sister and I later, as we became adults, would be able to piece together the story more and be like, oh, that person was just kind of disappeared from from like the stories. And it was because they died of something that nobody wanted to talk about or because whoever we were with or whoever was was feeding us, giving us the information because we were kids was uncomfortable talking about it and, and just wanted to like put it aside and move forward. And a lot of that, as we learned, in our show is so much about survival and so much about the particular situation we were in as, as first generation Americans, like our, our parents were just like, gotta go, gotta put our heads down and like keep pushing forward. There wasn't time to kind of sit in their grief. And so I think over the past couple of years and then kind of kicked off by my own personal grief experience and then trying to somehow become an, more of an expert for my kids and like be a good, Parent to them as they were experiencing profound grief and loss for the first time as little kids that um, I was like there's so much to learn and it turns out it is impacting every single thing in my life and I think that was the thing also is that confronting a lot of like my own very limited understanding of what grief was it all hit me all at once because I was feeling like physical symptoms, like the emotional, just all of it. And I, I, you know, I talk about it in the show is that like, I was like, literally walking into walls, like door frames and stuff. And I was like, Oh, now, two years later, I was like, I was in the throes of like, immediate grief. And like, my brain didn't know what to do. Your limbic limbic system, system, my cerebellum was a a kimbo. So, I think that is a very Mm. long way of saying, you know, for me, I weirdly never thought about grief or death loss as a part of my life. And then it was a huge part of my life. And once that kind of, you know, the lid was torn
0: off, I was like, oh, this is everything. And Rebecca, it seems like you may be opposite with your family. It sounds like much more open
1: talking about grief and loss. Uh, yeah, certainly about death loss, I would say, or like an engagement with grieving and showing up. I was on the flip side. So I know there's a lot of young people who listen to this, but I was the young person. So who was experiencing it, even from I don't, at maybe age seven, a beloved cousin died of a very rare cancer who was around my age. And that was sort of like Ben, Ben Fogel. And so that was and we had a really wonderful relationships. So that was something that I understood young could happen. And then when I was in my teens, a three people very close to me died tragically, which is now it was very, I realized was all very close together. But when you're a teenager, you know, being 12 and being 18 are very different ages or being 15, 14 and 18 feel like a long span. But um in that time, you know, ninth grade, and um, my very best friend's brother died in a car accident. Then in uh, the summer before senior year, a dear friend was hit by a bicycle, uh, was on a bicycle and hit by a car and died when she was a, a couple years younger. And then in my senior year, uh, a friend died of a brain aneurysm. So like one of my best friends. So it was a lot but my family was always show up people. And I think, uh, you know, it was you always show up to the funeral. You always go to the Shiva, you no matter, even when it wasn't somebody close. And um, we just did that. And so then when it was close people, that was my parents were like, of course, we, we have to go and be there. Of course, it was the priorities were very clear, um, which were like you you show up and you you're there for people, and you bring food or whatever. And I think there was a lot of Jewish tradition in that. I think for my mom's family, who are were in a very small Jewish community in El Salvador, it was also in, in in Jewish tradition. You need a minion, which is ten people, to do some of the morning rituals, or you know, to sit with a dead body overnight. You need somebody there saying prayers. So when you only have a few hundred people in an entire community. You need everybody, even teens, have to show up and participate in it. And so that was a part of how I grew up. I didn't realize truly until this project. I literally, I was like, Amy was like, no, that didn't happen to me when I was a teen. And I was like, wait, no, I was what? like, I tried Not to buy everybody? cigarettes.
2: That was what I did when I was Yeah, Well,
1: I was school. also <laughs> buying cigarettes. Don't do that, listeners. But it, we all do silly things and then we learn. I didn't truly didn't realize and I'm in my 40s having so many tragic deaths in your teens is like a quite an intense and formative (laughs) experience which then later when my mother-in-law was dying of cancer I was able to I even when I worked not for myself but for big companies if somebody was sick who I loved I was always able to be like, none of this matters. I have to go be present for people. And that was something that I learned early. And also to not make people ask for my help or support. It's your show up superpower. Show up superpower. So just fly across the country to be with my mother-in-law, you know, once a month for a few days or encourage my husband to take FMLA, you know, and take time off while he could be with her um, and also just to be able to be present and experience the kind of the power of hospice nurses and of being in the presence of sickness and death. But I, I, I'm realizing now, you know, how much it formed me. But my my parents, it's not that we talked so much about how it felt to be grieving, but we we never shied away from understanding death and, and knowing that people died and and being there with it.
0: Rebecca, one more personal question for you, if that's okay.
1: Sure. Oh, and then please. Then I really want
0: to talk about your show. So we're going to get there eventually.
1: Oh, my God. But this is a, a joy. To, we didn't just so, I mean, for listeners, we don't really talk, Get we didn't get too into this in our show. And we we did a version of telling some of these stories and a friend gave some feedback and was like, unless you're going to go into it really then it feels like anecdotes rather than stories and so this is a it's a pleasure to be able to talk about it i think one of the things i loved i love the people that i lost and um i think about them all the time in beautiful ways and so and it hits me in complicated ways like i was driving the other day and was driving to San Francisco, so obviously I had to play the Grateful Dead, okay? <laughs> Just be with me on this journey, everybody. And Ripple came on, which is a Grateful Dead song for all you deadheads in the crowd. And I burst into tears. And I was like, I didn't know why. And then I texted Daniela, who's my best friend, who went through these tragedies with me. And I was like, did we sing that at Whitney's funeral? And she said, Yes, we did. And I, ha- you know, that was in the year 2000. <laughs> and I, I, it just, you know, so it's a long time ago. And it still emerged from me with a rawness of what that song was connected to, you know, 22 years later. So, anyways, I thank you for inviting us into this conversation. That was the long way of saying that.
0: Well, I think you touch on something that I catches people off guard so often and that those deeply rooted sensory memories are like mm. time travel for a lot of folks, whether it's a smell mm. or a sound or um the way the air feels or the way the leaves look in a particular season, it just like transports people right back to the time that they heard bad news or that the death occurred or a memory they have with mm. that person. Pearl Jam
1: alive. Pearl, Pearl Jam, jam <laughs> alive. <laughs> Do you, I'm obviously dating so many of these like tragedies to the '90s, but I mean it was yeah exactly correct. That's it's a very intense and kind of amazing to have those those sensory reemergences. I I, I actually am grateful for them,
0: and those memories often are. Um... I don't know if the right word is untouched or untrammeled in some way where memories that we share stories together with others, right? Then we get their input and our input and everything kind of gets, not to use the your term, but the mashed up a little bit. And this is hard to know, like yeah. what's purely our memory and we may know it, but we don't feel it. And there's something about those memories that are like fully embodied, bringing us back to mm-hmm. that person or that time or that place, which can be positive and joyful and also like scary and terrifying and overwhelming. They come in all forms,
1: Of course,
0: I was wondering, Rebecca, you mentioned like, you know, that you grew up in this family where death was what was happening. It was part of what we did as a family, we showed up for other people, we didn't shy away from the reality that people die. But it sounds like it's more of a recent uncovering or recognition of just how much all of that tragedy you experienced, you know, as a young person has shaped and formed kind of who you are. And I wondered if there was an example of something that came to light for you as you were doing this Grief Collected podcast series.
1: Well, I think there's a few things. Well, one is I say to Amy, for instance, when she was having this experience with the loss of, you know, with this huge tragic death loss, watching that and having watching her as an adult have that experience kind of for the first time, and being um, i'm like in a year in i'm like okay you got to go to the cemetery she's like i don't know what to do for the end of i remember the anniversary because i have a death loss anniversary like quarter of my brain of like m- 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 people in my orbit but kind of like it goes it goes wide <laughs> <laughs> so i was like i think it's about this time and what are you going to do and she's like and i was like she said, I don't know. I, should we go? I don't know. The cemetery, you know, is, is, is wrestling with what? And I was like, you got to go. You just got to go there. It's real. It's physical. And that actually has. A, a, a So that wisdom, I believe, is in me and I can share it. Um, I think my ability to be present for my mother-in-law's death and her sickness was because I'm not uncomfortable being with death. And I think mm, it's foundational to my marriage now and to my children's relationship to their grandmother that they didn't get to meet. I'm comfortable talking about her all the time. We sang happy birthday to her this week. And so I think that's the way that it's presented is my ability to be present. And I'm aware that that's something that I'm I hold close to and has um, is, is something I'm proud of. I don't know now. Like it's like I don't wish this on anybody. Really, it's horrible. But given what it's given me, it's like now I I'm like oh I have deep empathy. <laughs> I understand like when I'm walking in the supermarket and someone's kind of being weird. And you're like I don't know what happened in your life. I don't know. Like I remember when my my mother in law died that day and we weirdly went to get champagne to celebrate her because I don't know. It was just what we needed to do in that moment. And I went and I was in the store and I was like really foggy and and just being like, do these people know that I just watched somebody die and held their hand and then a rainbow shot across the sky. Like they don't know, but I also don't know what happened in their lives. I I, I don't know if this is the answer you're the, 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 the realm of answers you're seeking, but I think that it, it, I've realized that it's given me a lot of empathy. And um, and again, like sometimes I go too hard. Like recently, friends, uh, family members experienced death on like s- other sides of their families. And I'm like, tell me about him. What was he like? Like, I'm really, and they were like, I'm not quite ready. <laughs> you know, I was like too ready to be in it with them. And they were like, w- then they're just tears were falling down their face. And I was like, oh, I went too hard. I, I came in too hard, like too comfortable. But you know, I, I I think that's it. Is that? Does that? I I don't know. Now I'm crying and talking about all these people I love.
2: <laughs> I'll, I'll, give I an, do. I'll give an observation is that I think in the process of making the show, what Rebecca's experience has has brought to the table is fearlessness of like what's out there, and I think that's what a lot of grief is about: are challenges in talking about it the ways that we want to be so prescriptive about how we're going to heal from it is about fear because it's just this like hard, scary, horrible, messy thing that strikes to the core of like all of our existential terror. And like Rebecca's like, yeah, (laughs) Uh uh-huh. It's there. It's in it. And I'll be in there with you.
1: I man, I was literally at my 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 fortieth birthday, and I was looking around, and it, this wasn't everyone. It's still like COVID time, so it was a small outdoor thing. And I was looking around. I was like, everybody here lost a parent. Like there was some, <laughs> somebody. I was looking. I suddenly looked because a, a friend had recently lost their father, and I was looking. I was like, oh, everybody here has had some kind of tragic uh, death these are people who are very much alive and living, but had uh, experienced tragedy. So it wasn't, and I I don't know. I was like, Oh, look at that. I I didn't put it together. If that makes sense. And uh, Mm. that like, that's something that sometimes you, it's not the reason you're in community, but it can be a thing that you realize is a facet of somebody that, um, and their complexity and the beauty of that. Maybe that's why you're, part of why you've connected Mm.
0: it reminds me a conversation came up in a group the other day when people were saying like i always knew people died but until my person died i didn't know know that people die and now i'm in a room or a circle or a zoom room with a bunch of people who know no and there's something different about that even if we aren't talking about the grief or the people in our lives who have died there's just this baseline of like i know you know what i know and we know things that maybe other people don't know yet
1: Oh, totally. And also you don't have to do caveats. like when you're saying something that might, for somebody else might feel wrong. So a friend recently was both of her parents died in a short period, when she, and she was saying, "I don't really miss my dad." And she was saying it to two people who one a friend who had a very another complex relationship to a parent who died. And it felt okay to have that to say that and to not be judged for that. Whereas it's not to say that she didn't mourn her father's death, but she doesn't, you know, miss him the same way she misses her mother. That's just the truth of her life and her experience. And she didn't feel that she had to explain like why she's not a bad person. Maybe we laughed eventually about it because, you know, sometimes it also feels like. I always describe it as feeling like someone cut the wires in your brain like that's the sometimes and I remember when I was young and like a cousin of my dad's died and they told us you know Bernie died and I started laughing and I remember this like I think I was eight or nine it was such an intense feeling that the response just came out in laughter but I always think literally like somebody cut the wires and they just like went the wrong way it's like when my kids sometimes now are just crying so much and then I start laughing because I'm like I don't know what to do.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Amy, it's interesting listening to Rebecca talk about maybe feeling like coming into this idea of talking about grief with maybe more confidence or competence in it, or at least uh, I don't know if comfort's the right word. Familiarity maybe is the word I'm looking mm, for. Mm-hmm. And for you, Amy, I remember really distinctly the first episode of Grief Collected. You're talking to Dr. George Bonano. Uh, from Columbia University and one of the things that you're like we just want to know like are we going to be okay and it felt like there was this <laughs> like yeah this grieving is terrifying and I just want to know at the outset before I start having all these conversations like we're okay right like we're going to be okay and I does that feel resonant for you of how you felt about delving into this topic of grief?
2: Yes it felt essential I think Part of that is both that kind of personal feeling of like, and and I'm somebody who, my body keeps the score. Like I'm like really somebody who who often kind of physically registers some, something quicker than I can emotionally or intellectually, and so I have often been like, oh here's a here's a clue that something's off, and I'll be like my I, my body feels bananas, like something is not right here. I think this ongoing sense of like not just are we going to be okay with these deeply personal losses that we've been navigating, but also are we all gonna be okay because millions of people have died in the past two and a half years. And and our our show, your show, these are not pandemic focused projects, right? This is this is not like a COVID grief show. I hope there are millions of COVID grief shows because each one of those people, I think uh, Rabbi Danya said it, was was like a unique individual made in the image of God, right? Like we're we're all people. If even just in the U.S., more than a million Americans have died in the past like two years, that means like the grief calculus is that like nine million people are feeling this horrible thing and this hard, hard, hard thing that we're all feeling. And I was just like, that's that's so many people. It's like all so many people. So that question again of being like, are we going to be okay? Feels like as long as we know that there is something in this transformation of what grief that that we're going through with our grief, that it will lead us to a place of, I'm not going to say like, hope. I'm not going to say, you know, just that just that whatever that process is that there will be less suffering at the end of it feels like super essential. On the outer edges of like an acute death loss, I'm not in like the throes of of grief right now, but looking thinking about this like global grief, that's what's really can feel really scary to me. I had a lot of resources like I talked to a lot of people. The reason I was able to reach out to a dozen experts and spend time reading books and doing all of this in, in like my in my process was because like I I had a huge network of people. I had Rebecca. I had so many friends. I have money to get books. I have time and resources to think about it. I had like my, you know, my kids were healthy. Like there were so many factors that made it possible for me to navigate through the throes of really difficult grief and like I think Rebecca and I are always conscious that not everybody has those not and like a lot of people go into something it was new for me in that moment but I had a deep well of like resources to tap into that I was not shy about tapping into a lot of people don't have that and if we've got like 10 million people that are really really suffering this feeling right now how are we going to make sure that we're all okay And how are we gonna, like, how do we know? And this is where we get into the collective part of Grief Collected, is that, like, what are the ways in which we can take care of each other, start, like, pulling together practices that, like, we can can kind of support and help each other through this, especially knowing that everybody's grief is so individual that, like, what works for me or what helps me may not help you. Like, what are those things? And so I think going into our project, Leading with the question of "Are we going to be okay?" and most people believing "Yes," (laughs) was like super critical for us.
0: Do you think we're going to be okay? Me personally, I think you're already okay. (laughs) I think you know, and I think that's the that's the thing about grief. And as so, as you're talking, I'm thinking about these terms: grief literacy. Right. So a lot of the work Dougie Center does is around training and teaching about grief and teaching other professionals how to know a little bit more about grief. So I think about that from like a grief literacy. And then I think about I just keep going back to competence and confidence Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. that. And you said this at the beginning, Rebecca, you said we wanted to talk about the things that people don't talk about in the hopes of making something better. And the better is not the fact that it makes the grief better. It doesn't make us miss our people any less. It doesn't make our relationships with them any less Mm. complicated. What Mm -hmm. gets better is our capacity to know that this really sucky thing is terrible and horrible and painful And we're going to be okay. And there are other people out there also going through terrible, horrible things. And we can do some of that together. And we can help share the pain of it. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't diminish our pain, but somehow it makes it easier to walk around carrying this pain, knowing other people are carrying it and we get to carry it with them. Mm -hmm. So that's my very unarticulated answer to your question, Amy.
1: I think that's, that's the ex- exact thing that we, why we were, we called it grief collected. And like, both because we're talking about collective grief, like the grief of a whole society or of a world, like, what does it mean to be a community in grief? Uh, what are the different types of losses? Like we're talking about acute personal death loss here, but we're talking about, you know, our families are have experienced the loss of being immigrants and the ambiguous loss of like now being dislocated from a place that you would always your family might have been for generations and probably you're leaving because you were seeking opportunity which that's the best case (laughs) scenario Um, but that means that there wasn't opportunity where you were and there's still a lot of loss there that for us that's part of like layered into who we are and that we're trying to unpack. And I think um, it's a, the collectiveness of this, that we all have versions of these feelings. It's like, Oh, well then I'm like, you're saying I'm not alone <laughs> in and maybe if I articulate it or I'm able to say something or acknowledge that I'm not, that, that I'm having this feeling or this experience or then maybe whether it's my other family member or somebody else in my community or just other people in the world, maybe I'll ultimately, we can do something. I, I don't want to make it productive, but like better in this, like this is what you're doing here by it's like once you're actually helping provide resources to other people, it's already better. <laughs> and that's not everyone's job to provide resources but knowing that that they're there it's already less shameful or less hidden or less painful we we believe this applies to like how we learn american history how we think about how people in in our history have been treated by sweeping all of that under the under the rug this isn't a a matchup thing as i'm always use the wrong no you um. got that one right you swept okay. it under the so, right place. Yep. Okay. Good. So, sweeping things under the rug doesn't it, it doesn't make them not be there. It just means that you are like walking on a bumpy rug. And I think that's part of what we think about, like, you know, what it means to ha- for slavery to be at the core of this country, and like how many layers of loss and grief that we all have. And so, if we don't like the avoidance of acknowledging it, feels like an honestly a missed opportunity for like learning and being better that it's multi-layered. And that's what this whole project is, is that loss grief is personal. What it's in the body. It's physical and it's ancestral. It's also in our communities and it has a big community impact. And then ultimately at the end of this show, we talk about like, what could a future be? that we could imagine together when these conversations are less hidden. And so thank you for doing this work for so long, so many years, by already like laying the foundation for like a better future. That's a just no big deal. No big deal. (laughs) Tiny
0: thing we're all working on. Uh the last thing I wanna say, listeners about this podcast series, Grief Collected, and this goes back to what you had said, Amy, of like finding some tools. And what I've enjoyed so much is that you alternate between interviews with folks talking about grief, different aspects of grief, collective grief, ancestral grief, with these short episodes that give you something to do, like a drawing meditation or some other activity. And so that seems so special to me. It's so different than anything else that's out there. And I'm sure anyone who's listening who has not you know, found your show yet is now like, great, can't wait to go listen to it. So I'm wondering if you could give
1: listeners a little uh, guideposts of where to find you. Okay, I'll do it. The Mashup Americans is our company and who, you know, we we say we are the Mashup Americans, but you probably are too. Um, you can find us all over the place. Mashupamericans.com is our website. And our, our podcast is the Mashup Americans. This is the newest season, which is We're calling Grief Collected. Um, We also have a very special website for this show, griefcollected.com, which has a bunch of other resources, um, like links that you can find, white papers with all the research from our friend Dupay, who has been on this show before, as well as a, a bookshelf. So books that we've read that inspired us and helped guide our conversations. Go there. And then you can go, you know, there's like 75 back episodes of our show which are about all sorts of other things too but uh this is really um this season is out now and a- as you said it alternates there's an interview with a theme and then then that later that week we put out a kind of what we're calling meditation so that's it mashupamericans.com griefcollected.com and mashup americans wherever you listen to podcasts And listeners, I want you all to know
0: I'm watching uh, Rebecca's face She's doing this all from memory. So I really appreciate you giving people all those places to go. And Amy, Rebecca, thank you for taking time out of uh, corralling your children and whatever else is happening today on your Thursday. I'm just grateful for the work that you've done, the gift you've created for all of us who listen to your show and for the time spent today with me sharing, you know, maybe a little bit more personally than you do uh, in the podcast. So thank you both so much thank you thank you so
2: much for having us this has been I mean we both cried do I still have makeup on we'll see
0: and listeners out there, I say it each and every time, thank you for being part of the show, for making it mean what it does, for sharing episodes with people that you think might be helped or interested in what we're talking about. If you want to reach me, you can email me directly at griefoutloud at duggy.org That's d-o-u-g-y.org. Also our website where you can find uh, free downloadable tip sheets, activity sheets, information about our local programming, and also all of the past episodes of Grief Out Loud also excited to share that grief out loud is sponsored in part by the chester stefan endowment fund thank you so much for listening we hope you'll join us again next time